Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. A quick thank you to the T5 peeps, Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Estrella the Dreamer, Mesic, Pudic Yarl, and Casper Arnholtz. Thank you very much. Chapter 391 Comes with 12 genuine painted in Bobco. Just add water, real cows, holographic Triadadad Moo Moo carers with their own VI. And everything you see here. Batteries not included, please wait 4 to 12 hours for delivery. Popco. Dalkin Porchworth. Is it weird that I want one? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfords. Every time I see that, I have to remember that they don't make those anymore. Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism consensus. Just bamb one up. Templates are on Gullnet. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfords. It's just not the same. It's just something about Popco stuff that templates don't replicate. Nothing follows. Pavian Dominion. Cheapness? Trianodad Highfords. Don't be such a Grinch. Sis, hurry up. It's about to be back on. There's just, you know, something about old Bobco stuff. Nothing follows. Manted Pre-Worlds. Don't start without me. Nothing follows. We now return to Soul System Broadcast Network Holiday Special. Already in Pavian Dominion. It's starting. Nothing follows. Manted Rewilds, oh, made it. Blow on it. It's hot. Nothing follows. Amarusa pinching time. What are the white things? Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. Marshmallows, hush. Nothing follows. In progress. How the Zock totally on purpose and not at all accidentally saved Christmas. The spaceship was drifting as Pathok looked at the unfamiliar controls. He'd only been a few Terran ships, most of them captured military vessels, but he was pretty sure that none of them had control buttons and levers like this one. Half the buttons were different colored numbs with a clearish-looking granular color. Most of the levers were colored with red and white spirals and either ended with a U or a wide multicolored disc. He wasn't precisely sure, but he was starting to think that there was something strange about the spaceship. Bithok adjusted his Moo Tender hat and opened his faceplate, staring down at the controls. His speed was five times the Sparrow's flight, but three seconds less than a day after tomorrow. Chittering nervously, he looked again. That made no sense, but he'd heard some Earthlings used bizarre measurements, and that was ridiculous. Mr. Pithok, I, I need to go back home to, and to my bed, the little Terran girl said. After all, Christmas story I've already been read. What was the cargo he was stealing so fast? Pathak asked. I'm pretty sure the fuel in this ship isn't going to last. Pathak frowned and tapped his translator. At last, but sounded weird. Presents and whiz-bangs and tickle trikes for boys and girls of galore, the girl said, kicking her feet where she was still in the chair. She was wearing a pink one-piece suit with the foot coverings that Pathak had to admit looked pretty comfortable. Even the lace color around her neck Fun stuff and neat stuff and some made with love, but not bought from a store. Um, okay, Pathak said. He looked at the navigation display. It had all of two markings on it. 
The ship, which was done in such a way that it looked like candy, and a star marked Corbatenturi underneath it. The Thok knew most of the Terran settlements in the era. He just left New Terra with Mumu's ice cream and tobacco, and there wasn't a Corbatenturi anywhere in the sector. Maybe the ship had a new time of drive. I'm gonna go check on the drive. You stay here, little darling, Pathok said, putting on his best Mubu carrot Terran accent. I will, Mr. Pathok. I'll watch the clock, she said, smiling. Pathok nodded and went back through the airlock. He hopped from outcropping to outcropping till he got to the bottom. He opened the next airlock and stared. There were brightly colored packages, festooned with ribbons, everywhere he looked. They were piled haphazardly to the ceiling and piles and strewn about. There were large, ornamented Terran foot coverings laying on the floor, stuffed with toys and candies and fruit, some of them with the contents spinning out onto the floor. Pathok held out his hand, catching a few flakes of frozen condensation in his palm. The environmental system must be out, he thought to himself. He moved forward, skirting around the boxes and crates, the stockings and stuffings, even passed by the roast beast, with all the trimmings that smelled delectable. There were even evergreen trees festooned with decorations tossed here and there, complete with blinking lights and stars at top. What primate madness have I found myself involved in? Pathok wondered. He passed several rows of compacted frozen precipitation that was fashioned into three spheres, each one smaller than the one beneath, stacked one on top of another. Each one had a black hat with a nifty brim and looked pretty spiffy to Pathok while others had small conical hats with a white puffball on the tip like the green thing had been wearing. Pathok grabbed one and shoved it in his pocket. Maybe the matrons would like it. At the back, he opened the door to the engineering section, passing inside. He hit the lights and looked around. There was Vazuzals and Caruzals, Dumphy Pumps and Stungy Dumps, Marvelous Conducers and Fabuloso Transistors, there were Weedles wheedling and Speedling speeding, and Whirling twirling, jumping, slumping, spinning, space and whirling, and contraptions and fantabulations. Pathok stared in shock. Nothing! He saw belonged in a spaceship engineering and drive room. He wasn't sure what any of it did, and he once stolen an armored ice cream transport. He approached one of the many, many, many consoles, looking at the labels, which had such strange writing as... Frosting thickening lever thickener, and creamy filling whipper stiller, and choco pecan strawberry injector. The intercom clicked. Is everything okay on you, Mr. Bithyok? The little girl asked. Of the equipment, you should take stock. Um, everything's okay, small Terran female, he answered, looking around at everything. He wasn't sure, but it looked like one of the wheels made of sugar and the other ingredients had gotten slightly dislodged. Closed his eyes, took a deep breath and pushed on it. It clinked back into place, and everything around him began moving. Some equipment whistled, others chimed a merry tune, and still more began turning, or pumping, or cracking, or clanking. The Zuck rushed out of the room and closed the door behind him, slumping against it and sighing. He brought out a cigarette and lit it, standing next to the stacked frozen water, and puffed at it. Your tinsel drive is almost charged up, the little earth girl said over the intercom. I'm making cocoa. Would you like a cup? Um, yes, Pathok said. We will be right back after these messages. Leave our contemplation pool. But this really happen? Nothing follows. Trianidad Highfords, yes. And we'll find anyone who, who claims otherwise. Nothing follows. 
Live our contemplation pool. Okay, okay, take it easy. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. I get it. This was made right after you guys encountered the terrors, wasn't it? Nothing follows. Mandit pre-willed. Yes. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. And you guys didn't really have any culture beyond must lay eggs and please don't eat my head. Nothing follows. Bavian Dominion. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much them. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. I totally get it. Matron Sangbra and Matron Nektati are making a movie based on when they met Daxon and how they got to Earth. This is kind of like that. Nothing follows. Hakanean Fruit Zone. Whoa, check it out. A hover bike with a radio, jet boosters, max ceiling of 300 meters, and autopilot. I totally want one. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. They don't make them anymore. Too many kids slammed into each other or sucked birds into the intakes and crashed. Or flew into orbit somehow. Nothing follows. Hakanean Fruit Zone. Wait, those are for kids. Who the hell gives the kids something like that? All Terrans. All. <laughs> Ranted pre-rolls. Hush, it's back on. Nothing follows. Now we return to our holiday special. A ready in progress. Pasok exhaled the last of the smoke out of his feet, ignoring that it might be perfect smoke rings, and moved back through the cargo area. In several places, large dolls or small Terrans with pointed ears watched him, their outfits brightly colored and festive looking. When he got to the bridge, he looked around. The tiny human female gave him a large mug, hot to the touch, with whipped cream on top. Mr. Pazak, I made you a drink. You will like it, I think, the human child said. Thank you, tiny human, Pazak said. The controls were all lit up and one big button was flashing. Pazak moved up and stared at it, watching it flash. Idly, he took a sip of the hot drink. It was pleasant to the taste, reminding him of the heated bowl of choco-marshmallow-flavored bomb ice cream. He took another drink, gave the equivalent of a shrug, and pressed the big red button. The ship flew into motion, but Thok shot backwards, the mug in his hand leaving behind a long trail of whipped cream and hot chocolate, until he hit the back wall with an oof noise. Sparkles and small birds appeared around his head for a moment, until he shook his head. The ship picked up speed and Pathak felt his chitin on his face began to ripple and pull backwards, deforming his head. It wasn't painful, but he could see his reflection and it looked like his mandibles were flapping. The ship suddenly came to a stop and Pathak flew through the bridge to slam against the viewscreen. All sprawled out, a leg or an arm in every direction, still holding onto his mug of liquid chunker bomb. He slowly slid down with a squeaking noise and landed on the floor. The ship was making a beeping sound, and Pathok got to his feet, took another drink to calm his nerves, and looked at the panel at the viewscreen. A large planet, all white and blue, with clouds swirling around, was getting closer. No, no, Mr. Pathok, the controls have gone out, the tiny Terran girl said. If I can't get home, my parents will shout. Pathok stared at the instruments. I'm not sure what to do. The little girl pointed a long braid of multicolored ribbon twined with shiny metallic silver threads. You'll have to take that, go out into the hell, I do the coach cone, and then give it a pull. I'll burn up and re-entry, Pathak said. The little girl picked up the vanished green creature's red hat with a white fluffy border and a white puffball of the tip. Mother Gunch's magical hat, it'll protect you from the heat and things like that. Pathak sighed. 
moved over and picked up the hat and swapped it out for his Moomoo Tender hat. It fit comfortably between his antenna sheaths on his spacesuit helmet. All right, we're falling fast, Pathak said. I'll go out and pull the nose up on the ship. And then we'll land me done with the part of the trip, the little human female said. Pathak moved back into the central traverse tube, checking the long strand of ribbon and silver metal. He'd practiced the art of lassoing moomoos on his own world, so he let the large loop fall to the coil of rope, moving it to the airlock. It had power, allowing him to cycle it and go outside. The ship was heading towards the planet, falling most first. Thok clumped outside the ship, his magnetic boots making it so that he had to walk slow, stiltingly. He got halfway forward and let the lasso fall. The ship was starting to enter the atmosphere, heat of re-entry making the round ball at the end of the nose cone glow a bright red. Thok twirled the lasso over his head and let fly, compensating for the pull of the planet with a thin atmospheric drag. The end of the lasso widened out and dropped over the nose cone, and Pathak pulled back, expecting nothing. The nose slowly began to rise as the ship dropped into the atmosphere, rapidly dropping. Pathak held onto the rope, pulling tight, he like he was trying to get a mean Mumu to stop. Fire roared around the strangely shaped ship as it dropped into the atmosphere, heading for the snowy expanse of trees on the surface. The ship left behind tree-shaped puffs of white smoke as it fell to the ground, surrounded by fire. Finally, the ship slammed into the snow and Pathak was thrown from the ship, railing through the air, giving out a strange cry of <laughs> before landing in the snow and making a perfect Trianidad-shaped hole. Will Pathak survive? What secrets are in the boxes? Will the Terran Grub get home? You'll find out right after these commercials. Ackletax Soaring Worlds. This is so exciting. I don't even care that there's no way a magic hat could keep you from burning up and re-entry. Nothing follows. Trinidad High Worlds. I know. Isn't it great? Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 391, Part 2. Hakanean Gestalt Thingy. What's on after this? Manted Free Worlds. Um, puppies in Winter Wonderland. Oh, I always cry during that. I'll be boring again. Only for a different reason. Nothing follows. Puffy in Dominion. Uh, you guys still watch that? Wow. Nothing follows. Janadad High Worlds. Sis loves it. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. After that is. Uh, oh, wow. They're really putting out all the old ones. Ackletack Soaring Worlds. What? Nothing follows. They're pulling out Daxon and Kiss Save Santa. Nothing follows. Tinfuru gripping hands. That sounds amazing. Wait, what's a kiss? Nothing follows. Trinidad High Worlds. A heavy metal band that's been going for like 9,000 years. They've had like 500 band members over the centuries. Check out this picture. Nothing follows. Tinfuru gripping hands. They look scary. Is that guy breathing fire? And what's wrong with his tongue? Nothing follows. Pavian, Dominion, don't ask. They're still around. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds, yeah, they're releasing an album like last year. Nothing follows. Hakanean Fuzzy Tan, okay, tell me that they didn't really give kids what's in this commercial. The Bobco Antigrav Belt, really? Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. Oh, yes. Yes, they did. Nothing follows. Hakanean Fuzzy Town. 
That just seems so, uh, dangerous. Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. You've met humans, right? Someday, allow me to explain the concept of a Waldot to you. Nothing follows. Talcum Fortuals. Oh, I saw one, one of those. 10,001 science experiments. Now with uranium 238. That'll help our scientists. Nothing follows. Pavian Dominion. You realize that's for kids, right? And made by Burbco. Nothing follows. Talcum Fortuals. Wait. They're giving kids radioactive material to do experiments with. What kind of psycho does that? Nothing follows. All Bobco. Everyone. <laughs> Manted Prewolds. Hush, it's back on. Nothing follows. We now return you to Soul Night Holiday Special. Already in progress. Bazok stuck his head out into the hole he'd left, shaking his head to clear the snow from over his eyes and hanging off his chin. It took two tries, but he managed to do it. He reached up and touched his face, realizing that somehow... He'd lost his helmet. Well, at least it still had the magic red hat. He climbed out of the snow, taking time to shake it off. He blinked at the ship where it was laying in the snow, like nothing had happened. The little human girl was standing outside the ship, hugging herself. Mr. Bajok, I fear it's a bit chilly, the immature human female said. We don't have time to be a little silly. Right, uh, I'll try to figure out, Bajok started to say. A large animal with huge horns and thick brown fur and four legs rather than the proper six, burst from the snow-covered shrubs, followed by nearly a dozen more, all pulling an ornate red and white conveyance decorated with brass, shining silver, and more of the white and red-striped bars. Driving it was a Rygetian female, wearing fluffy red pants and a white fur at the waist and ankles, a set of cross-chest leather straps tied in white and red stripes, large black boots, and the hat the Pathok had on his head, on her head. I saw your ship and came as fast as I could, the Rygelian called out, standing up and snapping a whoop covered with bells that made a tinkling sound as she cracked it over the animal's horns. I brought the sleigh like I promised I would. Pathok noticed her features were strange. She had a cleft chin, heavy brow, patrician nose, and her coloring was slightly off, looking more greenish-gray than grayish-green. Anasoma, the Terran girl squealed, clapping her hands, but thought noticed she had pulled open mittens that he wasn't looking. But we should call you Squeewalk. The Rygadian female reined in the prancing quadruped beast, the leather straps attached to them all tinkling and winkling as bells and lights dance. I have come to help the two of you with the work, Anasoma said. Bathok tapped his translator. The one sounded weird. Let us unpack the ship of presents and gifts, Anna Soam Squeewalk said, adjusting her hat. Luckily, great weight, I can lift. Bathok waded through the snow as the side of the ship lowered to reveal all of the brightly colored packages. Anna got out, adjusting her thick, shiny black belt, moving next to the spaceship. Bathok moved up to the Rigelian female, and as the little Terran female handed Hannah a package, who handed it back to Bathok, who stacked it in the back of the animal-pulled sleigh. We will be right back after these messages. Bavian Dominion. You know, it only went to commercial so we don't have to watch them work. Nothing follows. Mounted Free Worlds. Shush, don't spoil it for the children. Nothing follows. Tinvera gripping hands. Why is this Terran woman describing loneliness? Oh, 
If I feel that way, I should call others or visit them. But if I don't have family, nothing follows. Li Bao Contemplation Pool. Oh, we can call her or another Terran via Solvet, free, and talk to them. I think I'd like that. It's been a kind of scary lately. Nothing follows. Ranted Free Worlds. You aren't alone anymore, dears. Nothing follows. Hagane and Fuzzy Gestalt. Think about Bob. Oh, more toys. What happened to Bobco? Nothing follows. Triandadad High Worlds. They were based in Pavia. They moved there only a few decades before the war. They got glassed like Pavia did. Ah, oh. Wait. Nothing follows. Pavian Dominion. Wait. What? Bobco is here. Nothing follows. Tarkin Fortrold. He's got Bobco merch. Get him! Triandad at High Worlds. Turn him upside down and shake him. Nothing follows. Mantid Free Worlds. Oh, you two stop that. Presents aren't going to fall out of his pockets. Wait, is that a real dog robber friend? Shake him harder! Nothing follows. We now return to your holiday special, already in. Rygelian, Serene Compact, settle down, starting. Nothing follows. Progress! Holding onto his hat with one hand, Bethok looked behind him at the back of the sled and shook his head. The bright wrapped boxes were piled into a huge stack that gravity and physics said must fall over at any second but there it was, wobbling back and forth. Once in a while, a decorative glass ball or a large snowflake flying off of it. Hannah Soma cracked a whip over the draft beasts as they charged through the snow towards the large structure. If we can get the chest safely to the top, we can make sure that the presents are delivered to all the good girls and boys, the little Terran female said. We'll deliver the stockings, the cookies, the tweets, the pies and toys. Pazok nodded. Staring at the large building, it was round with a crenellated top. It looked barely ominous, and Bethlock was more than a little worried about it. Still, the Rygerian female was an expert at driving the conveyance, he had to admit. She deftly weaved between the trees, large snowdrifts, and stacked up balls of snow with crude faces made with black rock smiles and eyes of some kind of long, thin orange tuber for a nose. There's a light on, the little tearing female grub began to sing. Over at the Nakatomi place, the Regillian sang. There's a light on, the sock pointed out as a single window lit up with an orange flickering light. Burning in the fireplace, Regillian female sang answered. There's a light, a light in the darkness of everybody's life, the tearing grub sang. Pesok shook his head as the other two kept singing as they drove through the snow-filled night. He had hired regalians that were a musical people, and he had to admit, she had a nice voice. The song went on and on as they headed towards the tall, round building. The red and white sleigh slowed down in front of the tower, coming to a stop at the loading dock. Here we have arrived after a brisk sleigh ride, the regalians said. It's almost home to my bed, little grub said. Where are we warm and toasty and fed? But Zok looked up at the building. It was made slightly reflective, clear cryosteel and endosteel, a modern building with all the trimmings, complete with blinking lights on top. The Rygelian beeped a horn that sounded musical and cheery. After a few moments, the door slid open and the Rygelian cracked her whip, driving the 12 plus 1 beast into the large garage. There were miniature Terrans inside, with wide eyes, pointed ears, sharp chins, and festive-looking clothes. 
They quickly began to unload the packages, throwing them into tubes and pulled the cargo packages up into the tube with a characteristic whoosh of grab lift. They were almost done in the time it took Pathok to blink twice. When the lid of a box popped off, a furry green creature lunged up out of the box and grabbed the Terran grub with two long arms. You all thought you were free, the green thing said, but you have not killed me. Oh no, it's the grunge, the Rygelian exclaimed, putting a forearm against her forehead and collapsing back slightly. He'll eat Wendy Woo for lunch. On top of the tower I'll be, the green furry thing said as he did a somersault in place and dropped inside the box. You must duel to set Wendy Woo free. Pathok ran up and looked into the box, seeing nothing but a plus bottom. How many times do I have to kill that thing? he asked, staring up. It serves the goobers who everyone does fear, Anna said. I'll wait at the sleigh and stay right here. Pathok sighed, walking towards the elevator. When he got inside, he looked at the buttons for a moment. There were a ton of them, all looking like white discs with weird spiral lines. Looking at it, he decided to press the only one that had green swirls instead of red. Sighing again, Pathok leaned against the elevator wall, pulling out his two plasma caster pistols and checking them over. One was damaged, the barrel spitting sparks. The other was almost depleted, only a few rounds left. He checked his holdout, a nifty Terran slug caster made of shiny ender steel and embellished with bronze. He'd picked it up, where he'd hidden it in his right foreboot. For a second, he wondered when he'd taken off his spacesuit. They'd shrugged. It didn't matter. He took a slug caster and tucked it behind his back, where it wasn't immediately obvious. Finally, the elevator dinged and the door slid open slowly. The room was lit by a cozy fire in a fireplace, with pillars holding up the ceiling and festive decorations scattered about, including a tree that had been hauled indoors and decorated. Ahead of him, by the window that had a storm shutter rolled up, was a furry green thing and a tall Terran male, all dressed in black. So, you are the one out to stop me from stealing Christmas from all, the Terran said. I told you when I came back that he answered to a girl's call, the green thing said, pointing at the Terran grub, being held tightly by the tall Terran. Mr. Pasak, help me please, the grub said. Without presence, happiness will cease. Let the girl go, Pasak said slowly moving forward to gauge the distance. Our answer is no, the green thing said. Don't say I didn't give you a warning most true, the fox said. He looked down and tapped his translator. Say what you want, there's nothing you can do, the green thing said, chuckling. Your plasma pistol, throw it here, the male said. He looked at the little Terran grub who cried out, Or I'll harm what you hold dear. Don't trust Hansel's words, Mr. Pathok, the grub said. The goober boys lie when they talk. Pathok drew his plasma pistol with two fingers before tossing it at the green thing. He saw that both the Terran and the green thing were watching the plasma pistol fly through the air. He had practiced the maneuver repeatedly after seeing the Terran bodyguard perform it. Pathok pulled the slug thrower from behind his back, firing rapidly. Four shots to the green thing since three didn't do it last time. Two shots into the tall human, center of the upper chest, above Wendy Wu's head. The bullets went through the green thing, which slowly collapsed like a pricked balloon, shattering the window behind them. The tall Terran male staggered backwards, still holding onto the little Terran grub. 
Zok rushed forward, grabbing the Terran grub with his gripping hands and pushing the Terran's arms away with his blade arms. His instinct was to stab the Terran male, but he didn't have a good angle as the Terran male staggled back, still holding onto Wendy Wu. But Zok pulled backwards, making the little Terran grub cry out in pain. The Terran male stepped too far backwards, overbalancing, falling out the window. He grabbed little Wendy Wu's hat, holding tight, even as he dropped. The grub gagged and choked, the string at the bottom cutting into her neck. Pathok pulled on the little girl, lifting her up, one blade arm moving to slice through the string. The Terran male fell, waving his arms, vanishing into the snow for a moment before there was a sudden explosion that showered up sparks and spinning lights. Thank you, Mr. Pathok, for all you've did, the grub said. You've saved me, a cute little kid. Yeah, yeah, kid, Pathok said. He turned and picked up his plasma pistol before carrying the grub to the elevator. Let's find out what else needs did. Bethok looked down at his translator and shook his head. The elevator door closed with a ping. We will be right back after these messages. Mounted free worlds. It's just not Christmas with Hansel Gruber falling from the Tower of Nocturne. End of chapter. Chapter 392 Heavy Metal Incoming How to describe those three simple words? Do I tell you about how loud it was, roaring across every frequency, every audible sound range? Do I talk about how it roared from every speaker, every flat plane of macroplast and glass, and armor gloss as well as any flat surface thin enough to vibrate? Do I tell you how three words were full of such malevolent fury, that it made my Shabashan driver, Karalash, whimper in fear. Do I try and explain to you how it was, all at once, a threat, a promise, an offer of salvation, and a warning of an incoming devastation? It was not gentle, reader. A simple, empty statement put forth by an emotionless computer. It was not an empty emotion and flat-sounding. It roared and bellowed full of lemur rage, primate aggression, and purely Terran menace. I told you, the lemurs of terror are coming, and they are pissed. Records, simulation, even high-fidelity recreations do not carry the sheer weight that these three words carry when they are bellowed out and let their being know that the lemurs are coming with guns. There is something completely human about their three-word warning. Human trading, diplomatic, and civilian vessels arrive quietly with a sparkle of jump space energies. The Terran War Machine arrives with a roar of hatred and an explosion. Those three words had reduced more than one being into a hanging their head, surrounded by their own waist, mumbling, Alima's coming, over and over to themselves as they shuddered with terror. I had no time for such things. Our tank was badly damaged, to put it mildly. Less than 32% of minimum recommended armor plating was left. Half of the interior systems down, the crew spaces open to the outside in three places and completely out of ammunition. The refugee and rearming point came into sight, and I breathed a sigh of relief. I had been racked by fears of the lemurs destroying the place with orbital strikes, or even landing in order to tear apart the shelters, 
and kill the refugees. Instead, there were tanks being worked on, robotic repair systems running on each of the ten repair bays, Neo-Sapiens working at the jobs that they had been trained on, ammunition being brought over from the safety pit that I had ordered dug out for the munitions that I had taken from the lockers to be put into. The tank slid to a stop, the skirts grinding on the asphalt. We had enough armor breaches that I could see around the tank quite easily, which was a good thing since the majority of the sensors were nothing but fused circuitry and melted alloys. I was able to scramble out of the hole in the side that we had gone into battle with, somewhat ungainly, but I'd left my dignity back with my modesty and my arrogance. I staggered and nearly fell when my hooves hit the ground, and I realized that somehow I had lost not only one of my hoof shoes, but the hoof itself, landing on the soft flesh normally hidden and protected by the hard material of my hoof. When I limped over to the aid station, I stopped and stared. The Neo-Sapiens that had started work there were still joined by even more, and I saw two fiddies working with them, one wearing jewelry and clothing of a high-ranking matron. The other was barely mature, her nervousness evident as she moved from patient to patient. Around me were slings and cradles and beds and cots, all containing wounded people. A tankers whose eyes had been burned away along with the crests on the back of his head and neck. A talcon missing an arm and burns across the same side of the muzzle and torso. A sabashan missing her tail and one leg. And so many more. I stood there, feeling a crushing feeling in my chest as I stared at all the wounded. The young fiddy made a low moan of pain before stepping away from the tinvuru for a moment, then moving back to cover the tinvuru's face with a cloth. They had died, despite all my efforts. The matron moved up to me, running a beam of the medical scanner over me. I can treat minor burns and contusions and bruises if you take off your armor, but I should take care of your missing hoof first, she said. Just the foot, matron, I said, limping to a sling. I'd like to say that it was stoic during the procedure, but I cried out in pain twice as she debrided the dead flesh, spraying sealant on it and then wrapping it in a protective cast. The painkillers were for those who were wounded worse than me. And of course, the dying. While she was wrapping my foot, Lu'usalu'u came in, removing her helmet. Her fur looked slicked, almost like plastic, and her whiskers just behind her little triangular nose were bent. She looked exhausted as she sat down next to me, out of the way of the matron working on my arm. Does it hurt, most high Helma or? she asked me. Very much, I admitted, wiping the tears from my face. But it could be worse. We saw that it was worse for many. She nodded slowly. I looked at the matron, shuddering with exhaustion. I need something from you. She raised one eyebrow. I need a shot of stimulant. I must return myself to appointed task, I told her. She frowned at me, and I could see her looking at where the mechanics were using a winch to drag my much-abused tank to a repair cradle with a side eye. She lowered her head slightly and stared at me. And how long have you been awake, Most High? she asked. I knew right there that she knew that I was no Most High, and I sighed as I checked my data links chrono. 41.32 hours, matron, I said softly. She stared for a long moment. You are the one who was protecting the bus that rescued my daughter and I, are you not? 
I nodded. Yes, matron, I said. She knew of my dishonor, knew that I was actually a prisoner that had just been deemed too minor and inconsequential to jail in the face of a precursor assault. She held up an injector, fiddling with it. This injector contains powerful stimulants, Halima Orr, she said softly. If I were to inject you, say, in your forward left flank with this, you would feel that your fatigue and hunger drop away for nearly twenty hours. She said it on the tray next to me. I cannot in good consciousness administer this injection, and I must warn you, you'll risk heart and brain damage should I inject you. It would put you in danger. You may very well suffer cardiac muscle damage. Your lungs could fill with fluid. You could suffer blood clots in your brain. She turned away, closing her rear eyes. Do not inject yourself, Halima Orr. Then heed my warning and understand my reason for not injecting you. I nodded. Of course, matron. How foolish of me, I said softly. Lucilu's eyes burned like a fire as I picked it up, stripped the safety cap off of it, and stared at it for a long moment. I slammed the auto-injector into the thick muscle of my flank, ignoring the fact that it stung. My heart started hammering in my chest, filled with pain. I groaned and found that Lucilu held my two left hands, while Fulminta held my right hands. My breath came in painful gasps, feeling like a glass was stabbing into me. My injured foot burned with pain. My eyes felt like they were going to explode in the sockets. I thought I was going to die, as the synthetic hormones coursed through my system. Then it was past. I closed my eyes and slowly opened them. The fatigue, the numbness, the gnawing of hunger pains swept away. Garrelash ducked into the tent, flinching slightly as the cries of pain and suffering, but moved over to me. We have another tank. The crew abandoned it and fled in a grab lifter, he told me. It is fully loaded with ammunition and armor is unblemished. I nodded, gently untangling the sling. We will go forth and save more people. How much more space do we have? I picked up my helmet, the surface gray and pebbled from too many near hits. Enough for the 9,000 more. The technicians are working on the last two bunkers. If they finish while we rescue people, we'll have enough room for 15,000, he told me. He looked into the distance, and I knew he was checking his data link. That's 30 trips with the bus. Any priority concentrations on civilians? I asked, moving towards the tank that Fulminta was standing next to. She had painted Civilian Protectorate Service on the side with an auto-painting drone. Two Habs, roughly 3,000 living beings in the Habs, a mix of species, Lucilu said softly. Heavy metal incoming! Hold the line, brothers! Roared out, and many cried out in pain and fear as the sound echoed from hundreds of sources. We do not have long, I said. Soon the Terran will be here. I pointed at the sky. They will attack the precursors and us. We must get the civilians to shelter. The Terrans have no reason to attack us. Jolcrex, who had ridden with me and helped me run the guns that first terrible night, said softly. They are here to kill the precursors, and only those who attack them. My people attacked theirs. They are at war with the Unified Species Council, I told him. I triggered the personal ramp and watched it slowly unfold. Terrans are a strange people, Jalkrick said. If we do not attack them, then perhaps they will not attack us. Pray to your benevolent digital deity, I told him, trotting up to the crew ramp. 
I will curse the names of the Forgotten Ones, the gods that perhaps my people worshipped before we left them behind. Jolcrex joined us, getting into the secondary gunner position to take over on the secondary guns, including the mortars and missile launchers. Lu'u got into the electronic warfare position, activating each system. At least this time we have chief flares and drones, she said. The mechanics installed an additional battle screen projectors, the ones used for heavy tanks. We will need them, I said. I loaded around into the chamber on the plasma cannon, shuddering at the memory of how my first shot had been virtually ignored by the precursor machine. I had learned a few tricks to strike at them. The battle screen projectors were weak at the seams, their armor was vulnerable to kinetics, and I could use the plasma cannon to strike at them with shrapnel. The sun was rising as we entered the city, the red orb in the sky hidden by smoke and worse than full sky. It looked like a great bloody eye staring at us as we drove into the city. I was leading the massive hover bus with my tank. Behind our bus was a wrecker and nearly a dozen cargo lifters driven by Neo-Sapiens, some of them injured. The immature filly was inside a cargo lifter marked emergency medical in blue paint on the side driven by a pair of Tinvaru, with four Talcon on top of the box cargo area, all carrying plasma rifles dropped by fleeing infantry. A Hamarusa with a loudspeaker called out to the people we passed, urging them to follow the road to our refugee point, urging them to abandon the city as fast as possible. Many of them were weeping, staggering, many of them dressed in rags that had replaced their clothing. One by one, we began emptying the houses, the habs, any buildings we could. It was noon when I heard over the communications band the voice of Ayamaru, the Great Grand Most High. All commanders perform a fighting withdrawal towards the nearest population centers. All infantry commanders who still command men who are to be commended for their valiant actions and gallantry are to sweep through the cities, creating fighting positions. The calm voice of the Grand Commander of Armour stated, All armored vehicles move to coordinates I have sent. We will create a fighting line around the population centers and seek to keep the precursor machines away from the population as long as possible. I breathed a sigh of relief as my tank hummed around me. We had grounded it, letting the guns cool, letting the slagged armor on the rear port flank cool giving Luusulu time to load new algorithms for her EW systems. My data link clinked and pinged, a message coming in directly to me. Hey Armala Or, are you there? The voice was a Armru speaking directly to me again. Yes, Grand Most High, I said, feeling awed. I rubbed my chest, working to banish the ache. I cannot spare you any forces for the task that I have set you upon. This task you have shouldered yourself. A armoru stated, How are your plans proceeding? We have not rescued as many as I wished in the six hours since dawn, I told him truthfully. Only six thousand living beings. I gave a slight shudder. My medical center is overwhelmed. I have no doctors, only medical kits from abandoned tanks and lifters, and I cannot save the badly injured. I am forcing them flank to flank, hunched to chest into the shelters. I gave another shelter. Most high, they all weep. As I locked the door, You have rescued six thousand beings in six hours, Halima Orr, he asked. I have, most high, I replied. You said that it was not as many as you wish. How many did you wish to save? He asked me, 
All of them, I admitted. All of them, most high. What use am I if I cannot save them? There was silence for a moment. Heavy metal incoming! Make way! Roared out. Save the civilians, Halima Or, as many as you can. Most high armor, said softly. Ghana, 15th class, hey armor, Allah. I am proud to call you and those who labor with you, brother. I armor out. I sat for a moment, putting my face in my hands. I wanted to weep. My mind racing, my thoughts jumbled together, memories jangling my brain. The Terrans coming. Heavy metal is here! No, the Terrans were here. Soon we will face the mad lemurs of terror in addition to the precursors, I said, reaching out and taking hold of the controls of my tank's massive main gun. The vehicles are loaded, the hab has been emptied. We must return. We are nearly out of ammunition, Jalkrick said. The battle screen projectors are nearly burnt out. We have no spares to rotate in, Luuslu stated. We'll guard their rear, I stated. Heavy battle is here, roared out again. I shuddered again, remembering that each roar was not a single ship, but rather an entire combat group of them. Dozens. Armed to the teeth with weapons, dangerous even to those who fired them, and armored beyond reason to withstand even precursor main battery fire. I could have taken nearly an hour to reload the tank, the robotic systems working as fast as they could. We simply moved to a new tank that Falminta painted emergency services on the side again in blue paint. The sun was high in the sky, but hidden just a glimmering red circle in the sky that was hidden by smoke and ash as we drove back into the city. We did not listen to the channels. They were full of panic and dismay. I was ashamed of my fellow soldiers as I saw them run by or drive by, their weapons, and in some cases even their armor, abandoned as they fled the battlefield. Where do you think there is to go? Karalash asked as he narrowly avoided hitting a fast infantry assault gravelifter full of panicked troops. Where there are no precursor machines, Falminta said quietly. We were silent as we moved up to the last hab. We had two buses now, over a dozen heavy lifters and nearly a score of infantry lifters, all of them containing armed neo-sapiens. Twice, they had been forced to shoot panicked landing to land troops who tried to take the lifter from them. Following my honors and shooting to kill. Not wound, not maim, not frighten. Shoot to kill was the phrase of the day. We were heading back, following the wrecker, the lifters, when the starboard battle screen gave a rippling snarl as a precursor machine stormed out of a half collapsed building. I kept shouting, Shot out! as I stomped on the firing bar as fast as I could convince the loader to slam ammunition into the chamber. Joel Krex ran all three guns at once, his hands moving rapidly. Two hands operated and one slaved to his helmet visor. Garadash kept us moving, dodging as many shots as possible, sliding us to the side. He was pulling the precursors to the side of the harbor bus path, the path of the refugees. The tank was taking hits more and more, the forward battle screen collapsing as Garadash turned us around even as I spun the turret to keep the precursors in sight. Battle screen projector to reload jammed, Luz Lu called out, trying to override. Shot out! I answered, stomping on the firing bar, converting an abandoned luxury limmer into a slashing shrapnel. 
the second shot pushing the shrapnel in a wave of superheated protomatter. We took another hit, and another, and another. The gun was beeping, but I stomped the override and shut down the computer assist, running the gun by eye. The front of the building crashed down as a precursor machine ten times the size of my tank pushed through the bottom of the building. I put a shot into its place. Then a second. Its return fire collapsed our battle screen and ripped our armor off our back deck. Particle beams vomited from a dozen different cannons tore into us. The cell seven and eight housing was vaporized and we scraped to a stop. Another hit wrapped enough armor off the turret starboard side. Then a hands with gap appeared. Another hit, and the tank spun on the massive energy transfer from the particle beam caused our armor to explode outwards. I stopped the bar and the computer refused to fire. The barrel snapped off only a meter from the armor of the turret. I slapped the override and stopped again. Shut out, damn you! I bellowed. My friends, it has been a pleasure, Delcrex said, running the two remaining guns. I will see my family again soon. Lucy said, We aren't dead yet! I roared out. I reached up and tried to open the gunner's hatch. It was jammed, and I slapped the emergency button. The hatch blew off on the explosive bolts, and I stood up, poking my helmeted head out, aiming by eyeball and fired again. The plasma just washed over the massive machine. It slowed, and I could feel its cold benevolence. I knew there was nothing that we could do. Another stomp, and I heard the beeping telling me that the gun was empty. There was no more ammo. I reached down and grabbed my plasma rifle off the rack, lifting it up and aiming through the sight. There was a roaring sound, a high-pitched, shrill, whistling shriek, the roared sound of thrusters right at the last second. Explosions suddenly bracketed my tank as large objects slammed into the ground. There were eight-sided cylinders, a heavy retro thruster, and a base surrounded by smaller guidance thrusters. They hit the ground, blowing tarmac and gravel into the air. I kept firing at the precursor machine, yelling at it. No words, for I had none. Just mad and yelling and screaming that had no words, only sounds. I would not go quietly into the darkness of death. No! Lanark to Lan are silent when born, and had been quiet and silent all my life. No more, not now, not in my last moments. I would go out screaming like an insane lemur. The sides of the object dropped, and out came nightmares. The mad lemurs of terror had arrived. Excerpt from... We were the land of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. End of chapter. Chapter 393. We may have seen Terran soldiers on documentaries or dramatizations, fighting against the Unified Council, the Beakers, the Autonomous Machines, their Trachna, or even one another. In all of those, the Terrans talk, terse orders from professional, dedicated, and experienced officers with clear-cut mission goals, Shouted commands from battle-hardened, non-commissioned officers to rally their men. Order complex maneuvers or direct the devastating firepower of the humans. Or even the shouts, war cries, and the enraged bellows of the Terran soldiers caught up in combat. It makes up for a fantastic imagery. But those words, those sounds, those commands are all taken from the records or written by a scriptwriter and recorded. 
Their communications, as well as what they say inside their armor, is recorded and archived and used in dramatizations and documentaries. On the battlefield, for the most part, the Terran Confederate armed forces fight in silence to those not connected to the battlefield tactical network, which makes them all the more imposing. Massively heavy armored beings made huge in their power armor, almost a third against the height of a grown Lanaclan stallion, twice as wide. Their arms as thick as a Lanaclan's upper leg, their legs, massive foundations that root the galaxy's most fearsome intelligent tool using Predator to the very ground they fight upon. Their armor is all black, a light drinking matte black that somehow seems like it should be shiny, bulky, to the point that they seem that they should be clumsy. Instead, they move fluently, as if their power armor is merely another skin. Weapons are built into the armor, Particle beam projectors, micro and mini missiles, point defense systems, indirect fire weapons. They carry as much defense as my tank. Battle screen projectors, stereo field projectors, chaff, flares, microplism, smoke, and more. Their suits, contrary to dramatizations, are not blank. They have information for those who know where to look. Terran numbers on the shoulders, forehead across their back, and on their chest. Each set of numbers over the barcode that allows their officers and NCOs to identify almost instantly. And their right shoulder is a flash of the unit they, they have seen combat with. In the case of those who have seen combat with more than one unit, their favorite or the one that their most impressive lineage. On their left shoulder, the symbol of the Confederate Armed Forces, underneath a flash of the current unit. Above the barcode and a number on the helmet is their rank. Below their number, on the left of their crest, is their surname. Their branch of service below that, and below that, up to three specialized training. On the right is merely Terran Confid, for all to see. The ones that landed had on their left shoulders what looked like a blue shield, with a Terran symbol for number eight, one white, and a yellow arrow piercing through the bottom. To Alanic Lan, and many of the civilized, near-civilized, and neo-sapient species, it was a dizzying amount of information, but for a Terran, it was all easily recognizable at a glance. Think on that, gentle leader. In a split second, a Terran has absorbed all the information given with a mere glance, even without accessing their data link. It took weeks for me to remember even where to look for the information I needed to know. The sides of the orbital drop pods opened and Terra walked out in two legs, their weapons ready, their targets locked in. In complete silence, a Terran from each pod directed fire from a harness-mounted heavy gun into the front of the precursors. Part of me expected the rounds just to bounce off or spark as they flattened. The harsh blue-white actinic flare of antimatter roared to life as the shells tore apart the armored front of the precursor vehicle. Two Terrans fired missiles before leveling fire from their weapons into the machines around the precursor heavy vehicle. Their weapons smashed the precursors into junk, even as the antimatter tore at the mechanical entities that had slaughtered almost unsupposed for three days. The smoke, whitish-blue, covered the area as one of them deployed masking munitions. My tank shuddered as one jumped up next to me, bounding across nearly fifty paces in two short hops that left him crouching down next to me, one hand on the hull of my crippled tank, the other one holding out a compact weapon that was roaring as it fired heavy shells at the machines. 
Is your crew still alive, Lanky? Is, if there was a he, asked in a heavily synthesized voice. I made a motion of assent, my mouth suddenly too dry to talk. I managed to croak out a yes, and the helmet nod. Good. This Miss Daisy intel section spotted you from orbit about to lock horns with that thing. Sorry, it was a last second, but it took a few minutes to get you, they told me. You are not here to destroy me, I asked. My body was shaking. The adrenaline and the stimulant shot almost too much for me. The precursor machine gave almost a biological scream as the superstructure collapsed in on itself. A turret fired a rocket into the burning wreckage. The helmet moved side to side. No, not unless you shoot at us on purpose, he told me. How badly are your men wounded? They're, um, they're all right for now, I told him. I felt a sudden rush of shame when I realized that Terrans had destroyed with apparent ease a precursor machine that my tank had been ineffective against. There's what looks like a forward operating base behind you. About four miles. Can you make it or is your tank in up? The Terran asked. I looked at my tank and shook my head. My tank is destroyed. There's a recovery vehicle nearby. Are you in contact with it? The Terran asked. I nodded again. You'll be all right here. I'm going to leave a three-man fire team. There's a refugee convoy leaving the city, and I have orders to protect it, the Terran said. They stood up and looked down at me. Sorry about your tank, you poor, brave bastard. With that, they leapt away, landing easily next to where the rest of the Terrans had gathered up. I put my hand on my helmet and activated my comlink. Melkar, do you read? I said. My data link communications were full of pops, clicks, and bursts of static. I read you most high, Balkar said. I could tell by the relative quiet that he had taken over driving the armored recovery vehicle, passing the bus to another. My tank is disabled. I need recovery, I told him. I have your beacon. Ten minutes, he said. He paused for a moment. There are Terrans in power armor here on our flanks. They are not attacking us, only the precursor machines. Other than that, they do nothing but march. Ignore them unless they give you command for your own safety and the safety of your charges, I ordered. Halima or out. Malkor out, he said. I looked over at the three Terrans that had been left behind. One had a heavy gun in some kind of harness, the linked belt of ammunition connecting the gun to the pack at the back of the power armor. As I watched three of the five fins withdraw into the armor, the other two had heavy rifles as well as compact fully automatic weapons on a hip with a large cutting bar on the other. The infamous Terran Chainsaw, a.k.a. Cutting Bar Mark II. I watched as one of them deployed two drones, small things like mylar wings. They chopped out, shooting into the air, and unrolled, becoming nearly invisible as they began to glide around us. I'd never seen a Terran before. I knew I still was not. I was only seeing their armor, but I couldn't help but stare. They looked like the universe's malevolence made manifest. Finally, Malkor arrived and I got out of the tank, shaking with near exhaustion, and helped attach the hooks on the ends of the cables to lift points in my crippled tank. It took nearly two minutes to winch the tank into place, attach the graviton lifters, and for my crew to get into the recovery vehicle. I sat on the damaged and destroyed back seat, my plasma rifle in my hand, watching as we left the city. Gana, Alama Or, this is Most High A. Armoru. Do you read me? Came over my comlink. Affirmative, Most High, I said. 
The Terrans are landing in your position. I've spoken to one of their leaders and they will be reinforcing your refugee point. The Terrans are, for right now, on our side, Aamaru said. His voice was deep and calming. I've agreed to meet the Terran tank commander face to face and uh, have spoken to his commander, General Nadrak. The Terrans have agreed to work with you. Yes, most high, I said. Do what you must to save the civilians, Helima Orr, the voice was solemn. I will, must I? I promise, I answered. I know you will, his voice had an odd note to it. A armoru out. Helima Orr out, I answered. I sat on the back deck, staring at the city around me. It was badly damaged, smoke rising up from a hundred points of houses and office buildings and even factories burning. From the direction of the starport, black smoke rose in a massive cloud that reached to the skies before flattening out. We passed corpses. Most of them were my fellow Lanarktalan soldiers killed while trying to flee. But there were civilian bodies. Too many. Much too many. Four times I ordered Malkor to stop, climbing down, my cast thumping on the plascrete to check if they were dead. Under a dead talcum brood carrier, four pairs of eyes stared up at me, blinking, holding tight to the blood-crusted fur of their mother. I gathered them carefully, putting them in an empty box that had held rations forever ago. They were quiet, just staring with wide eyes. I hoped that at least one of their other parents had survived, but the carnage where a handful of precursor machines had found fleeing civilians gave me little hope. Less than half a mile on one of the three Terrans made a hand signal at me. I ordered Malcor to stop the vehicle, and I climbed down. Yes, I asked. Nervous. We were exposed. The buildings around us burnt out husks. There are six Akaltak life signs under that destroyed hover truck. They appear to be immature chicks, the Terrans said. I noted that the synthesized voice was the same as the other one that had spoke to me. It gave me the chills. The Terrans were faceless, identical in voice and features, Kill one, another one took its place. The message was simple. We are unyielding. Still, I pushed away my fears, moving over and kneeling down, lowering my torso to look under the hover truck. Little eyes looked back. It took me several minutes to lure them out, the Terran staying back. One brought a box nearby and set it down, backing up. They all looked like three black statues. The little motlings huddled in the box, not even peeping, and I covered them with some camouflage netting before passing them to one of the civilians inside the recovery vehicle. At one point, a handful of precursor machines roared by overhead. For the last two days, they had owned the skies, hunting and killing at will, with nobody to stop them. This time, they were heavily pursued by three blocky and unfinished-looking grab strikers flanked by a dozen flying power armors on each side. They had stopped firing as they came close, but resumed as they passed over us. Heavy shell casings fell from the sky, a waste of bronze as shells rained from the sky to dance and chime on the pavement. The precursors ruled the sky no more. The lemurs had arrived. With fire and thunder and steel. Two blocks later, we saw a strange sight. Two immature Tuknan, still large and muscular, were pushing a ground car limousine being steered by a plaquette who was sitting in a blast crate, with a cemetery sitting on the front seat, where the door had been ripped away, holding a stun stick normally carried by Lawsec. 
One of the Terrans broke into a jog, catching up. The two talked non, nodded, their faces covered with sweat, and climbed into the trunk. The Terrans started pushing the vehicle effortlessly, easily keeping up with the recovery vehicle. I saw over two dozen heads poke up from one of the back seats before an ikiki hand pushed them back down. All children. We made another three stops before reaching the refugee point. Each time they joined us, once a ground car was being pulled by a dozen Talcon that had attached chains to the front end and were pulling the chains, dragging the car behind them while the Preket drove. They'd all heard of the safety was just a little ways further down the road. I prayed that it still was. My chest ached, a dull burning pain in my upper torso, but I ignored it as the recovery vehicle dragged my poor dead tank into a lot and toward the repair bay. I climbed down, standing and watching as two vehicles, both of them knocked up by EMP days ago, were pushed by Terrence into the lot. Part of me shriveled inside of me as of the memory of how many dead I'd seen. Get me another tank, I told Karalash, staring at the city that we had just left. There are those who still need us. As you command, most I, he said, turning and moving away towards the line of tanks that sat neat and orderly having been abandoned by those fleeing the battle. Pardon me, are you the officer in charge? A Terran asked, moving up to me. This one was in hard plate armor. The faceplate on the visor was clear and I could see their face. I did not know if they were male or female, but their close-set eyes burned with predators' stare. There are no officers, only me, I stated. The others were killed. I paused for a moment. Nor ran. The Terran nodded. Then you're it until I find someone higher ranking, someone better, or you get killed, they said. They held out a hand. I am Lieutenant Colonel Jessica Martin Leverty, a 119 Combat Sustainment Battalion. We're here to assist you, General Nodruk's compliments. I thought for a moment. What does Combat Sustainment Battalion do? The Terran explained quickly. They kept combat units in fight, rapidly repairing and rearming entire brigades, providing medical care for the wounded and keeping supplies flowing. An entire company of medical, another entire company of mechanics, a company of ordnance, supply, fuel, heavy vehicle operation, weapon maintenance, communications, a platoon of electronic warfare specialists, and a company of light-powered infantry. When they said light-powered infantry, they waved at the two heavy-power-armored soldiers standing near me. Only Terrans would consider a half-ton suit of power armor to be light-powered infantry. Our ordnance tech, Sergeant First Class Grist, says that you've got a nice dug and spot to start fabbing up munitions for your tanks, the Terrans said. They waved towards a pit that I'd ordered Doug to store the plasma rounds. She's setting up a nanoforge right now. She capped the specs over your ammo by scanning a few of your rounds and a few of your tank main guns. The Terran stared at me for a long moment. Your current ammo is next to useless. You can't fight them with it, she said. I nodded. I've adapted a strategy that works against many. The Terran gave a slow nod. Be that as it may, if you give my men 20 minutes, we can fix that. I've got some of the best ordnance stacks in the 8th Infantry Division right here. I'll take any help you can give, I said. My priority is to get the civilians to safety. 821 combat engineers are working with your people right now. They're digging shelters and assembling them as fast as possible. They'll survive an orbital strike. The Terran paused. Whoever turned those ammo lockers into shelters was smart. 
They're designed to handle atomic or orbital strikes. They won't be comfortable, but they'll do the job. I thank you, I told her. I did not know what else to do. The Terran stared at me for a long moment. Do you mind if I ask your military occupation? I am a gunnery specialist, 15th class, specializing in tank main gun weaponry, I said. I waved my hand at my surroundings. All of this, I just guessed. The Terran nodded again. You did well. I held up my cast, which was dark with blood. I'm a senior medical personnel by my foot. I bled through the cast. The Terran stared at me. You aren't like the other Langies, are you? I made a non-committal motion. I'm simply one of the great herd. The conversation seemed over, so I limped to the medical tent. When I pushed my way in, I stopped and stared. Before, it had been chaos. Medical supplies had been non-existent. Only slings and what medical kits could be scavenged out of vehicles. Now, Terrans in uniforms moved through the patients. The matron now wore a type of uniform that made her look official. And she was leaning down to watch a Terran work quickly with a device that stripped away burnt flesh and fur and left behind a gleaming pink tissue. The younger filly was being talked to by two Terrans in silverish-gray power armor that had a red crescent on one side of the chest and a red cross on the other. They were showing her tools and giving some kind of instruction before putting them into a satchel the filly carried. The matron saw me as I removed my helmet. She made an excuse to the Terrans and moved over, looking down. You have bled through your cast, Most High, she said. She touched my neck, her fingers finding the artery there. Your heart is racing, you are sweating, and your pupils are constricted. We were nearly killed, I admitted. Luckily, the Terrans arrived in time to provide assistance. She nodded, looking solemn and regal. Despite the fact she no longer wore a sash, vest, blank covering, and jewelry of a noblewoman, I'll have the doctor examine your foot, must I? She said. She put one hand on my armored chest. What you do here, it may not be remembered by history. But there are many who will remember your actions. And many who will not, I said softly. Too many. You cannot save them all, most I, Alama Or, she said gently. You can only save those you can, and you have saved many who were abandoned. I nodded, feeling emotions I did not understand well up inside of me. Thankfully, the Terran medical specialist came over at that time. I am specialist 6th grade Eleanor Michael Chitty, a field medical specialist, they said. Again, I did not know if it was male or female. Where are you wounded? My foot has bled through my cast, I stated, pointing down. The Terran looked down at my foot. Scan him. We'll treat the foot first, unless his armor is hiding anything life-threatening. It was not, although the Terran insisted I remove my armor. When I broke the environment seal, the stench and scorch of burnt hair on hide assaulted my nostrils. My left flank was covered in small pinprick scabs from when the interior of the tank had exploded into us and pieces of battle steel had penetrated my armor. The matron and the medical specialist grade 6 smeared glittering gel over my flanks, then went to work on my hoof. Pain I was only vaguely aware of receded as whatever gel was that did its work. The Terran gave me an injection in my foot that relieved the pain but did not deaden my foot. They were almost done when the Terran came in, carrying new armor. Compliments of Lieutenant Colonel Laverty and the Battalion Armorer, the Terran said. It's virtually identical, just better laminate armor and kinetic shock packs. 
Thank you, Terran, I said. I meant it. Despite the matron's objections, I put on the new armor and limped out into the warm sunlight of the dying day. Grav strikers roared by overhead, flanked by air mobile and power armor. The Terrans were all moving quickly, purposefully, in some cases running from place to place. Construction machines roared, the tanks were being worked on by the Terrans as well as the robotic systems, and I could see the conveyor line moving new tank rounds into the tanks being fixed. The Terran commander walked up, their movements assured and brisk. Part of me wished that I could move with such assurance and authority. There's a tank loaded and refit for you, Most High, the Terran said. I looked at her, wondering if they were joking. I had told them my rank, but instead they spoke to me as if I was their peer. They saw my look and shrugged. This is your base. Your people call you Most High. Out of respect, I'll use the rank they feel comfortable with. They gave me a long, serious look. I would prefer if you stayed here to remain in command of this forward operations base. They turned and looked at the city, which burned and filled the sky with smoke, then turned and watched the podling being carried by an Aikiki whose feathers were scorched. The podling's eyes were wide, the fur on the face damp with tears, as they clutched tightly to the avian. However, I understand what you're feeling. Their eyes grew far away, shadowed with a pain that I did not understand. Or rather, I had come to understand all too well. This isn't the first city I've seen burn. When I was a little girl, the Margite attacked my world. I saw the city of my birth burning as I backed out. As an adult, I've seen cities burn, but I remember none of them as clearly as I remember shining Volmera, burning with a white light. Their voice was full of something that I suddenly understood. Regret and loss. Carry on with your mission, most high hell of all, they said. They paused for a long moment. The Terran Confederacy will support your mission to the best of our ability. The podling's eyes followed me as I limped towards another tank. Excerpt from We Were the Lanark Land of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. End of chapter. Chapter 394. Gen, you wine, Bobco, dehydrated moo moo farm. Use only with parental permission. Allow 4 to 12 hours for delivery. Trained praying mantis moo moo traders included. Bye in the next 15 minutes and get a Gen, you wine, pathok, chi 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 pet. Operators are standing by. Only from Bobco. Stranded at high volts. Oh, God, so one once bad. All of me wants one. So amazing. Nothing follows. Falcon Forge World. So a cheer pet is a clay bust of pathok that you smear gel containing grass seeds on, and it grows grease grass like hair. But that's stupid. Pathok doesn't have hair. Nothing follows. Triana that high vault. You shut up, damn it! Damn it! We're rubbing our credit cards on the screen and nothing's happening! Nothing follows. Tackle tack, soaring worlds. Does he get like this every time he sees the commercials? Nothing follows. All. Yes! All. <laughs> Pavian Dominion. Wow. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. What? Nothing follows. Pubian Dominion. So, um, like half an hour ago, I sent people to check on the Bobco facility. Apparently, it's, um, still operational. Nothing follows. 
biological sentient systems. What? It's what? Nothing follows. Bavian Dominion. Apparently it's up and running, producing toys right now. The four law second two government officials received gifts that they're blasting all over social media right now. The Trianodad ambassador who arrived last week is gifted a genuine Bobco autonomous animatronic Moomoo by the Bobco AI, not a digital sentience, an actual AI. The ambassador is taking vids of him petting his Moomoo and having it do tracks. He's lording it over every other Trianodad in existence by posting it to Smoky Cone Diplomatic site. The Trianodan matron in charge of the diplomatic team received a Pathak Chia pet. Its fish tank full of genuine sea monkeys, a robotic nanite circus of wonders, and two miniature real moo-moos, TM, and a genuine Bobco hollow hat. She's currently talking to the hive matrons on Smoky Cone, wearing a hollow hat, and panting her miniature moo-moos on a video conference to the other matrons. I think one is frothing at the mouth in envy. We're getting a hand on this before there's a riot. Nothing follows. Trandad at high vault. No! Marusa pinching chain letter. Is he going to be like this every commercial? He's not going to have a stroke, is he? Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Wait. The Bobco AI is online? Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. I thought AI was a racial slur. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. It is, but the Bobco AI is, uh, well, let's just say it's unique. Nothing follows. Manted, free worlds, and homicidal. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Oh, yes, definitely homicidal. Nothing follows. Dranded at hive worlds. Oh, my God, the Bobco Soulnet storefront works. Yeah, baby. <laughs> User Trianet at Highfalls has left the chat squee out of rage. Cybernetic Organism Cooperative. <laughs> he crashed his interface. Nothing follows. Libao Contemplatable. Wait. If it's homicidal, why isn't anyone worried? Nothing follows. Manted Freewills, because technically it isn't an AI, or a digital sentience, or even a digitized Terran. It's this weird blending of the two. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Consortium, because Bob Caveman Johnson was a complete psycho. Nothing follows. Manted Freewills, technically he wasn't a psychopath. He was just, um, over-imaginative with a lack of ethics and morals in some very specific areas. Nothing follows. Clone World's Consortium, like, um, combining Mantid and Terran DNA to create Mantis Men super soldiers to guard his toy shipments. Nothing follows. Mantid Free Worlds, yeah, like that. Nothing follows. Tinvuru gripping hands, that seems, uh, psychotic. Nothing follows. Libal Contemplation Pool, he's been gone for a while. Is he gonna be okay? Nothing follows. Rygelian Syrian Compact. He's uh, a little busy. The Bobco Solnet always online store is so overloaded it's actually reverted to a 2.5D storefront with limited interaction. <laughs> they do still sell the Fantabulosa pun pottling, no wind ups, they TM, squeaky duckling that sing over a thousand duckling songs out of stock. Damn it! There was 1.2 million left when I read that out loud. Now it's temporarily out of stock. Oh, hey! I get a free 64-ounce container of Bobco Muscle Max Ultra Sick Gains Powder. 
for my trouble. Score! Nothing follows. Falcon Forge Worlds, um, about that AI? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds, it's uh, complicated. It's a cross between a programmed AI, one of the first baked hash shredded rainbow salted table genesis systems, and a neural recording of Bob Johnson himself all bushed together. Nothing follows. Pavian Dominion, and just as crazy as the original Bob Johnson. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds, now can you tell? He's human. They're all crazy. Nothing follows. R-R-A-S. And here you out to Ronald Dixx. 0773H. We'll snatch from Russian. Manted Free Worlds. Everyone settle down. We've got a new one. Nothing follows. Drowned at High Vault. It's Bobco Christmas. Has logged on. Manted Free Worlds. Come over here, sweetie. Let Big Sister help you sort it out. You can watch a tribute with the rest of us. In Kuru Mind Data Link Astalt IO System Bootstrap. Um, okay. End output awaiting input. We now return to Alpathock totally and on purpose and not at all accidentally saved Christmas. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.